You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hi, Libby. Hey, Mado. How's it going? I'm excited for our conversation. And actually, I have an idea. What would you think about doing a mini series? We talked about answering some of the most common anatomy questions that you've been getting recently from yoga teachers. But what if we do a couple or three-ish shorter episodes and tackle one topic at a time? What would you think about that? Sure. I think that sounds good. Okay, great. So what is the first question that you want to dive into? Let's dive into students coming to class with spinal diagnoses. Question I get from yoga teachers who are concerned about their students' safety, you know, when they come to class and report having all these different things going on in their bodies. Okay, so here's the question about degenerative disc disease. The student says, I'm in my 50s and most of my yoga students are in their 50s, 60s, and up. So I'm assuming most of us have jellies that are drying up and with reduced space for our spinal nerve roots. So I can unpack that a little bit because the way I talk about spinal discs, intervertebral discs, is I refer to them as similar to jelly donuts. And the outer part is like the bread and the inner part is like jelly. And so we kind of use that as an analogy. So that's why the student is saying, I'm assuming most of us have jelly inside our donuts that are drying up. Okay. And then she goes on to say, but we all spend so much time sitting and hunched over our computers. So I love to include a lot of spinal extensions in my yoga classes. But now that I've learned that spinal extensions aren't that great for people with degenerative discs, which basically represents all my yoga students, given our age, I'm confused whether I should still emphasize spinal extension. Okay, that's an awesome question. It is. It's a great question. And there's a lot in here to unpack. So let's do that. So let's just back up a little bit and talk about the intervertebral disc for a moment. And I was talking about before how I like to think of it as a jelly donut. And in between each of the vertebral bodies of the spine, there is this intervertebral disc. And I love, you know, teaching and learning about the disc because there's so much kind of confusion about it out there in just the world. And the way that we speak about it can be so misleading. So we have all these words. We'll say, oh, I have a slit disc or I threw a disc out. My disc is out. We say things like that. And what's interesting about the discs is that they are solidly anchored to the bone that they're next to. They're, they're invested with the bone. They become the bone, basically. So the bread of the jelly donut is integrated. It just blends right into the bone above it and below it. And so there's really not a way for the disc to actually slip out of place. And that's something that blew my mind, I have to say, when I went to physical therapy school and I learned about the intervertebral discs. I remember the day like, whoa, my mind was blown because I always envisioned these discs that could literally move out of place, the whole thing, because that's kind of what I was led to believe by this layman's term, slip disc. Well, it turns out, that's not the case. The disc is strongly anchored to the bone. And so 
The question is, well, then if it doesn't slip out of place, what does happen? And so there are things that happen to the disc. And one of them is a bulge, a bulging disc can happen. And that's where the jelly that's inside that donut presses into the bread of the donut. So the gelatinous material presses into this really strong fibrocartilage material that is the outer part of the disc. And it can make that part bulge out of its normal area. It's literally a bulge. And now a bulge is not a big deal in most cases. It could be a big deal if it presses into a spinal nerve root. That's called nerve root you know, compression or impingement. And that will cause symptoms that are nervy and that travel in a particular dermatome, which is that nerve roots, you know, distribution on the skin, either if it's the cervical spine, we're going to be talking about the arm. If it's the lumbar spine, we're going to be talking about somewhere on the leg. And if it's the, the thoracic spine, we're going to be looking at the trunk. So all those nerve roots that poke out from the spinal cord, they have to you know, travel nearby intervertebral discs on their way to wherever they're going. And so a bulging disc can certainly impact those nerve roots. So that's one thing is like a a bulging disc scenario. What this student is asking about is a degenerative disc scenario. And so let me talk a little bit about what does that mean? What is a degenerative disc? Well, essentially that is where the jelly is drying up. Kind of like the student says in her question, the jelly is drying up. It's You could think about the jelly donuts as getting stale and this happens when we age. And so what happens is the disc shrinks, it gets shorter, and so the space between the vertebral bodies gets smaller, gets more narrow. What that also means is that the amount of space available for the spinal nerve roots to poke out also gets more narrow, okay? Because the spinal nerve roots pass through a little opening called an intervertebral foramen. I call it the spinal nerve root hole. The size of that hole depends on the height of the disc that is nearby at that level. Okay, so there's a direct correlation between a shrinking or degenerative disc and the size of that nerve root hole. Okay, so my first question is, when you're talking about the size of this hole changing, are we talking about the height changing and getting kind of squashed down? Pretty much. Yeah. So the disc is getting squashed down, basically. The, the space between the vertebral bodies of the spine, that is getting it, it smaller that way. So that's one of the reasons why we lose height. And part of that height that we're losing is disc height. Concurrently with that, as the disc loses height, the adjacent intervertebral foramen, where the nerve root travels, it just gets smaller. It just kind of closes down because it is related to the height of the disc. Okay. So I'm still having a hard time picturing it. Besides the shape changing, the actual opening available changes too. And is this, does material get added there to shrink it? The hole is not a closed circle. <laughs> Let's just say it that way. We'll call it a foramen, but that foramen is formed by two bones that are in a certain relationship with each other. They're not connected bones or they're not fused together. So that hole is malleable. So does that help? It's not, yes. a, not a closed system. Yes. 
It's not a closed loop that suddenly shrinks. It shrinks because the two pieces of bone that are adjacent with each other are now closer together. They have less space between them. So the hole that they form together is now smaller. Does that help? Totally makes sense. Yes. Thank you for that cool. clarification. Yeah. Okay, great. So that's what's going on in the case of degenerative disc. And unfortunately, we still have this diagnosis label that is called degenerative disc disease. And that's an unfortunate label because when someone hears that they have a degenerative disc disease, that sounds really horrible and scary, right? I mean, they come out of there thinking there's a disease in their disc and this is very terrible and bad. And so I wish that we could change that label because what we're coming to find out about degenerative discs is that this is just what happens to discs as we get older. And it isn't symptomatic in a whole lot of cases. So there's some really interesting prevalence research on spinal abnormalities of people like people with no back pain, no symptoms, people of all ages throughout many decades of age will go and have a picture of their spine taken in the MRI machine. And they'll look at their spine and they, you know, take note of how many people in each of these age ranges are demonstrating on MRI spinal abnormalities, anything from a bulging disc, a herniated disc, degenerative disc, you name it, all these abnormalities. Well, it turns out that a lot of people have spinal abnormalities visible on MRI that are not causing them any symptoms. And that is true for people in their 20s. We was just look at degenerative discs, which is what we're talking about with this question. Degenerative are present in something around 35% of people in their 20s with no back pain. And then as you go up the decades, that percentage prevalence increases. So by the time you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, it's getting closer to 80, 90% prevalence, which just means let's think of it as more of a normal part of aging, basically. It's a so kind of a process that happens in our spine and different factors are going to contribute to that in different people. Some of that's going to be some, some genetic predisposition. Some of that's going to be related to lifestyle. Who knows, right? It's all of the above. But it means we can't jump to a conclusion about you know, what's the cause of your back pain, basically. Just because we see a spinal abnormality on MRI, we really don't know whether that's the cause of your back pain. So that makes things tricky. And what it leads to is, you know, if someone does have some low back symptoms and they do get an MRI and they are in their 50s or 60s or 70s, guess what we can almost guarantee will show up on their MRI? A spinal abnormality. Absolutely. We're going to uh, put money on it. We will most of the time see degenerative discs. Okay. That's what we're going to see. And so then it's easy to say, okay, well, here it is. Look, we've got degenerative discs. That must be why your back hurts. But now that we know all of this prevalence information out in the asymptomatic population, we can't draw that. We can't make that conclusion so easily anymore. But nonetheless, someone walks out of that appointment with a label that's degenerative disc disease. And now they have um, you've taken on a bit of that identity. And now they're very concerned about their discs, understandably so. So it puts us in the situation as yoga teachers, of what do we say to our student when they then come to class and express that concern and that type of thing? 
So what I often will encourage yoga teachers to keep in mind is this prevalence research that's out there now that's been really amassing over the last 10, 15 or more years that really shows us that these spinal abnormalities aren't scary, you know, for a lot, a large portion of the population. And, and I always remind them too, that the yoga teacher's job isn't to diagnose or treat these types of things. And if someone is really concerned about their back situation, they should have it evaluated and treated by their doctor or physical therapist. End of story. The yoga teacher is way outside their scope of practice to take that on. And so as a yoga teacher, I would say, don't stress yourself out about it, right? And let's just use the body and its comfort zones as our guide in all of these cases. If someone does a certain movement and it makes their situation worse, makes their symptoms worse, that's a good sign <clears throat> that we should skip that movement today. Let's not do that or let's not do as much of that. Maybe there's an amount of that movement that feels comfortable. So let's stick with that amount. And so I always would encourage, you know, ask the body how it feels doing these different movements of the spine. And let's just use that as our guide and leave the, the rest to the, the medical professionals who have evaluation skills. So, but part of this student's question is about spinal extension. So I do want to mention, okay, what's the relationship with spinal extension and degenerative discs? Because there is one. And this is where it'll be useful to kind of like look at a picture of a spine, you know, especially from the side where you can really see those intervertebral foramen, those little holes, those openings that the nerve roots poke out of. And I mentioned before that as the disc shrinks, the space available for the nerve root also shrinks. So what happens in spinal extension, which is back bending, is that that space shrinks even more. For anyone, anyone, everyone, you just, when we bend backwards, <clears throat> the way that the bones move, uh, the two bones that are adjacent that create that opening, they move closer together. They kind of squish into each other and it creates a more narrow intervertebral foramen. Okay. That's what happens on extension. So if you're in a situation where you already have less space available for your nerve roots, and then you go into a back bend. Well, now you've got, you know, even less space still. And so that's why there is some concern about extension in the case of degenerative discs. But here's the thing. If someone does a back bend, let's say they do a cobra or a, a bridge, you know, some mild back bend, and it feels great, there is no cause for concern or alarm whatsoever. So again, we would default to comfort, but we do know that if someone's going to get nerve root compression that is related to degenerative discs, well, we would expect them to have it on extension. Okay, that, and that's what this student had in her mind when she asked this question, I think. She remembered in gold star for the student, remembering that when we go backwards into backbending, less space for nerve roots, okay? And that's going to amplify, magnify the situation that's already going on with degenerative discs. So she was concerned. But again, plenty of people can do backbending who have, you know, 
shrinking jelly donuts and they're fine. And here's how we'll know if they're not. They'll have symptoms with backbending. Now, what will those symptoms be like? They'll be nerve compression symptoms. What is that like? It's like electric sharpshooting traveling sensation that goes down the leg. If it's in your lumbar spine, if it's in your neck, it will go down your arm. It's a traveling, shooting, sharp, electric. Those are some ways to, to kind of describe it. It could be numb and tingly. Those are all nervy kinds of symptoms. Then when you come out of the back bend, let's say you go towards a forward bend, it should be, it should relieve, basically, it should go away. So that would be a classic kind of presentation of degenerative discs that are actually causing a problem on backbending. If we don't find that symptom, we don't need to worry about it. So what I would say to the student is carry on. You're right to want to emphasize spinal extension for a population of people who spends most of their day in a forward fold. Let's give some variety to the body. I think that's the right way to think about it. And no cause for alarm or worry. There's just cause for let's pay attention and let's ask the students to pay attention to how they feel doing these movements and to always stick in the comfortable range of motion. One of the things I think about too is that the movements we go into during a yoga practice are temporary movements. So just because we temporarily narrow these intervertebral foramen does not mean that they're going to permanently be narrowed. In fact, they might be benefited by having the experience of a little bit of movement there so that whatever blood flow is possible is being facilitated. And then there's just more potential for the type of movement that is normal and, and important for your body. Yep, exactly. I mean, I don't, I don't advocate any avoidance of any movement of the spine unless there's a really good reason for it, which would be person specific. And when we think about the nerve roots poking out of the spinal cord, it, it's just, it's complicated you know, their level of sensitivity is going to be different from body to body to body. And some people <clears throat> may have really clear, visible nerve root compression on their MRI. Like, wow, I can see that that nerve root is squished. And they actually don't have very many symptoms. They may not have any symptoms. And then someone else may have a really mild amount of nerve root compression really visible on an MRI and have big symptoms. So it's just so variable, I would say. And in any case, there's no cause for alarm. There's just cause for modification based on comfort, basically, as we move through a practice. And you're right. The changes in mechanics of that spine, that the way the bones relate to each other, forward bending versus backward bending versus side bending, those are temporary movements. And it's healthy for a spine to be able to go through all of those different movements and for the tissues to be kind of sensitized to handling those movements as well. So what I'm hearing as sort of a summary of this conversation is that it's great to know that when you backbend, that there is this narrowing or shrinking of the space for the nerve roots but that unless somebody's experiencing sharp shooting electric types of pain, that it's unlikely to be having any kind of negative impact on them. So there may be reasons to avoid backbending, but 
a fear of having degenerative disc disease or even having degenerative disc, disc disease without symptoms is not one of them. Yep, exactly. I've got two follow-up questions based on things that you said earlier. One is about this term slipped disc because you refer to it as a layman's term, which obviously implies that it is not a medical term. And so usually though, when you have a layman's term that is referring to a medical condition, often it came from a medical professional trying to describe what is going on with somebody's body in terms that they can more easily understand. So do you have any sense of where this term came from and what is it actually referring to? What's the actual condition that is being described when we talk about a slipped disc or that people describe themselves as having a slipped disc? So my best guess is that it's describing a bulging disc or even a herniated disc because that's when part of the disc is sort of out of place, you know? So that would be perhaps one way that that may have gotten described at some, some point along the way that it slips out of place, but the whole thing doesn't slip. It's that the jelly either bulges into the bread, making the bread kind of have a bulge out into the area outside its normal boundary, or the jelly actually squirts out of the bread and that's a, a herniation or an extrusion. Um, sometimes it's called. So, and those are two similar things of different severities. So a herniated disc is like a more severe version of what's going on in a bulging disc. It's bulged so much that now it squirts. And that's usually a more significant situation for someone. And if, if anyone's going to be led into a surgical repair of a disc pathology, that's probably going to be the one is a badly herniated disc. Disc material is out of the disc. The jelly is out of the disc and it's perhaps floating around in the spinal column or really putting a lot of pressure on a spinal nerve root. Sometimes, you know, in a milder case of that, the body can reabsorb that material and, and deal with it. But often that's the case that's going to be surgical. So I think there's two important lessons here. One is if somebody says, I have a slip disc or I threw a disc, that should be a red flag that they don't really know what's going on in their own bodies. And that, depending on your relationship with them, if you're, for example, doing private sessions with them, that might be a time to say, hey, would you ask your doctor to send me your file? Like, can I take a look at what they're actually saying about your spine? And then the other one is that when we hear the word hernia or herniated, what we want to be imagining is something squishy that's not where it should be. Mm -hmm. Because I know that for myself, when you hear the word herniated disc, a disc is something hard, right? That's what you imagine. And so I can totally see how a herniated disc turned into a slipped disc, but it gives you the complete wrong image of what's actually going on. And it's the same thing with like a you know, a, a hernia in your abdomen. It, this is something that is squishy that's gotten squished somewhere it shouldn't have. Yep, yep, exactly. Exactly. And really the better term for a herniated disc is a herniated nucleus pulposus. And that's the technical term for it. And what that means is herniated jelly. It's herniated jelly. And that part is called the nucleus pulposus, um, that jelly part of the disc. 
And you already answered my other follow-up question, which was the difference between a bulging disc and a herniated disc, but you smoothly wrapped that all in. So I think that was super clear and really helpful for thinking about this incredibly common diagnosis that people show up with. What do they actually mean? And what should we actually do about them as yoga teachers? Yeah. And you know, one thing you said a moment ago made a lot of sense, which is to keep in mind that if someone says, I threw a disc out, we don't really know what they mean. They may not have had it evaluated by a doctor or they may have, I don't know. But it's commonly something that people say when their back hurts. Because for so long, we all assumed, you know, I think in the medical world as well, there was an assumption that disc abnormalities were a causal factor for low back pain. And that has not been supported well by research. So, but still, often when people have low back pain, their first thing in their mind is, oh my gosh, I've heard a disc, right? So it may or may not be an accurate worry, but so that's something to keep in mind. And the other thing I would really urge people to keep in mind is to think about this intervertebral disc as like some of the sturdiest stuff that exists in your body. It is crazy sturdy and it is crazy well supported by layers upon layers of spinal ligaments and deep stabilizing muscles, layers and layers and layers. It is way the heck in there. And I think so often because we look at pictures that are, they're just like a one part of one layer of things, we don't appreciate just how well supported the spine is because we, we're not looking at ligaments and muscles all at the same time. We might just be looking at the bones and discs. And that just gives our mind a false impression and it's very easy to start thinking about the discs as very fragile. And so I would just put a plug in for a different way of thinking about your discs. I think what, one of the things you're speaking to is the limitation of anatomy as a field of study. Although your membership is called Anatomy Bites, the fields of study that are brought into that membership go way beyond anatomy, which is really about dissection. Anatomy is about separating the pieces of our body so that we can understand them better. But once we have done that, then we need to put them back together and understand them in relationship with each other. Right. Absolutely. And in context. And not only just in the context of the tissues that surround them and the mechanical reality of the body, but in the context of a human being that has worries and fears and beliefs and impressions and all, all the things that we're carrying around in our bodies, it, it gets complicated quickly, but the body is adaptable, it's resilient, it's super sturdy stuff. And these discs are a great example of that. I mean, literally when I was in the cadaver lab dissecting, you know, as anatomy, I had to get a saw out to get all the way to the disc. It was not easy to get to. And given that was a preserved cadaver and those tissues are not <clears throat> like living tissues, but it was very hard to get all the way down to that level. And I remember that day thinking, wow, this has given me an incredible appreciation of just how sturdy this stuff is. I can't get to it easily. I need a saw. <laughs> so anyway, hopefully that may help also bolster the impression of resilience and sturdiness in there. So as we wrap up this first episode of the 
anatomy mini series. Let's give a little hint of what we're going to talk about next. What will the next episode be about? I think the next episode is going to be about osteoporosis. Uh, and so we'll, we'll basically carry over into a different discussion of the spine and a concern about spinal flexion that is associated with osteoporosis. So I get questions about that a lot. And again, so another place where yoga teachers get very concerned and rightfully so. This is a reason for potential concern. And I'll let that be the teaser. Awesome. And if listeners want to find out more about Anatomy Bites, where should they go? They should go to anatomybites.com and they can find out all about it and they can sign up at any time. Awesome. Thanks, Libby. Thanks for having me.